Uh, good morning uh, to those of you again who are online, those of you who are here in the sanctuary. It's good to be together. Happy and blessed Lord's Day to you. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for several uh, months, and then last Sunday, which was the first Sunday of Advent, we decided to put uh, the Sermon on the Mount on hold uh, while we kind of took up some things that are a little bit more seasonal. I want to assure you that we are going to return to the Sermon on the Mount and finish that up after Advent. So what is Advent? Uh, Mary and V helped, or, or Michael and V helped us uh, understand a little bit of that if you were here uh, when they lit the Advent candle for us. Uh, some of you are familiar with Advent, some of you not so much, some of you grew up practicing Advent, some of you not at all. Admittedly, Advent is a season that's really only celebrated by the church, uh, and not at all uh, necessarily all of the church, but by much of the church. And Advent has this rich history. It goes back to the late four, uh, 1400s, so really more than 1500 years. Since its beginning, Advent was a season uh, designed and thought to prepare for the celebration of Jesus' birth, the incarnation of God. And this lead up to Christmas, not a biblical word, but what we call Christmas, uh, was always a quite solemn experience. Originally, Advent was a season for fasting, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just as was and is some for still the season of Lent in preparation for Easter. Uh, as people prepare for Easter by fasting, so people used to, imagine this, prepare for Christmas through fasting. It was thought that that was an appropriate way of preparing for Christmas, that preparing for the birth of Jesus, the coming into the world of God's Son, ought to be a sober time of reflection and devotion, including scripture reading and prayer and service and sacrifice that that's how the church a long time ago prepared for christmas the liturgical uh, color of christmas has or of advent has always been purple since early on purple the color of royalty some protestant churches sort of uh, in recent years have turned that a little bit more toward blue interestingly there was a famous pope a really influential pope around the year 1200 named pope innocent the uh, third and uh, pope innocent the third thought that the appropriate color for advent was black yeah imagine that the appropriate color he lobbied for Advent ought to be black because he understood that Jesus, the Son of God, was coming into this world of incredible darkness. And he came as the light of the world into that darkness. And so he advocated, never really was influential in that way, though, but for black being the color of Advent. Of course, this is not at all how our world uh, or our culture celebrates Advent, the lead up to Christmas. Not at all. In fact, a uh, few people in our culture have any idea what Advent is. In recent years, I have uh, gotten into this, uh, hopefully not snarky or scroogish, but sort of uh, trying to be more reflective myself, way of greeting people during Advent by saying, Happy Advent or uh, uh, Blessed Advent to you. So. Uh, out on the street, wherever people say, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, uh, I reply with, Happy Advent, Joyful Advent. And people just look at me like I'm either confused or crazy or both, and maybe I am a little bit of both. I see almost no signs of Advent in our world, with one exception being this big display at Costco a few weeks ago, capitalizing 
on Advent to sell wine, which I'm not sure is exactly, uh, exactly counts, not exactly a classical theme or motive or practice for celebrating Advent. They're right there in front of all the Heineken. Uh, if you can't see it, we'll blow it up a bit. Wine Advent calendar, okay? And take a wine adventure, take a wine adventure. Ah, all right, if you're not, yeah, you get it. For those of you online, everyone just can, ah, and sort of put it together, but take a wine adventure, Advent. Like that's the only place I've seen Advent acknowledged in our culture over the last couple of weeks and really over the last couple of years, Costco selling wine. And actually, I took that photo back in mid-October. Costco and Home Depot and many others have been uh, in full Christmas swing since September, as you know. Uh, there's something very different, though, in the historic celebration of Advent that the world doesn't do. And so what is Advent? Honestly, Advent has been about a lot of things, even inside the church, but certainly occasionally outside the church. Thank you, Costco. Uh, so people and churches have made different things of Advent as they want. As best I can understand Advent, though, and try to sort of put some simple handles on Advent uh, as I see it in different places, here's the way uh, I sort of simplify Advent for myself. First, it's about remembering and putting oneself in the shoes of the Jewish people who for as many as 1,500 years before Jesus looked for and waited for the coming or the advent, as Michael said, of a special person from God who would speak for God and through whom God would act. Put concisely in modern terms, waiting and watching for Messiah. Sort of putting ourselves into the shoes of Jews, people, for 1,500 years. Second, Advent is about preparing to celebrate the coming or the actual Advent of that special person, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Celebrating his birthday, birthday party, getting ready for that. And then third, Advent is about remembering that as the scriptures say, Jesus is coming, Advent, the Latin Adventus. Jesus is coming again in glory at a future time to usher in a future age and to judge the living and the dead, as we say. Uh, certainly, Advent's not t or Costco is not talking about Advent in any of these ways. But this has been the culture or the church's historic way of understanding and practicing. So Advent's about three things. First, remembering the Jewish people's waiting for Messiah to come. Second, celebrating the actual coming of that Messiah, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. And then third, looking forward during the season of Advent to the coming of Jesus again in a glorious age. This morning, with the time we have remaining, we're going to focus on the first of these. But before we get to that and to the scriptures, uh, let's begin with prayer. I want to use this morning the words of uh, a man, pastor, uh, mystic named Howard Thurman uh, to open this in prayer. So let's pray together. Holy God, may the sounds of Advent stir a longing in your people. Come again to set us free from the dullness of routine and the poverty of our imaginations. Break the patterns which bind us to small commitments and to the stale answers we have given to questions of no importance. Let the Advent trumpet blow. 
Let the walls of our defenses crumble and make a place in our lives for the freshness of your love, well lived in the Spirit, and still given to all who know their need and dare receive it. Amen. So you're familiar with a number of the passages of Scripture from the Old Testament that are often read and quoted during Advent and some on Christmas that lead up to Christmas that speak prophetically about a special person who would come, whom God would send, whom we understand to be Jesus. From the book of Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the prophet Micah and you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. From Hosea. When Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. From the prophet Malachi. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of, of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. A reference to John the Baptist who comes before Messiah. From the prophet Zechariah, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, slowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, a reference to Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday. And again from the prophet Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And all of those are important passages of Scripture from the Old Testament that in different ways point forward to Messiah and to Jesus. But there's an even earlier passage in the Scriptures that speaks of a special person sent by God to whom we must listen who would speak for God. It's not a familiar passage to us, but it was familiar to those in Jesus' day who knew the Scriptures and who were waiting and watching for Messiah going all the way back before all of the other prophets that I've just read from, to the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses, inspired by God's Spirit, here is what we read in chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy, way back there toward the beginning of the Scriptures, beginning at verse 14. And this is the Word of God. The nations, this is Moses coming out of the wilderness, still in the wilderness, 40 years. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. In other words, all of the nations around you, those against whom you war, those who are filled with pagans, those who worship idols and practice idolatry of all sorts of false gods around you, they have their incantations. They put words into the mouths of their little gods. The nations will dis, you will dispossess. Listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. Verse 14. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do that. To conjure up divine words as they seem to do. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses wrote. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see the great fire anymore or we will die. 
And this being a reference to Moses' own near-death experience on the mount, receiving God's word, receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the law, and how coming face-to-face with God would kill, eviscerate a person they understood by his glory and his holiness. And so they said, no, not that for us. We couldn't handle it. We need a mediator. We need someone to speak for God between us and God. Verse 17. The Lord said to me, Moses wrote, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth, the Lord said. He will tell them everything I command. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And though all throughout these verses and the verses that immediately follow the person of whom both Moses and God speak in the singular, that person is also understood to be a series of people for each generation through whom God would speak his words. His truth, his message, he will communicate his heart, his will, his way. And this most early reference to a special, unique individual was also understood to be one person, one unique and particular person, later known as Messiah, whom God would send, who would come, who would embody the voice of God, the spirit of God, the presence of God, the power of God, who would speak in a unique way for God. And so we, and along with all Christians over the last 2,000 years, have understood this one person in a series of people, but one who would be unique, to be Messiah Christ and eventually Jesus. On Friday mornings, a bunch of us men get together to study the scriptures together, 8 o'clock, if you're a guy. Uh, Regardless of your age or biblical background or anything else, you're welcome to join us and hang out. We've been going through the book of Acts most recently. And this past Friday morning, we got to chapter 7 in the book of Acts, where we read about the author of the book of Acts recording the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it's coming on the lips of a disciple named Stephen early on. And Stephen is speaking to the council of all the important uh, leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. He has a hearing before them, and he goes on before them to recount all of Jewish history, all of the history of their faith, all of the history of their people, as he's laying the groundwork, a common ground between what they all hold to be in common. And he goes back to Moses, and he quotes these verses he does in his long speech from Deuteronomy 18:15. Moses saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And while Jesus was and would be much more than just a prophet, he certainly was also a prophet. Defined biblically as, quote, a person who serves as a channel of communication between the human and the divine worlds, which certainly Jesus did as the God-man as the one being who has ever been fully God and fully human. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. 
And certainly the New Testament, and particularly the book of Matthew, presents Jesus as the new Moses, as another Moses, as one like Moses, who in every way surpassed and was greater than Moses, but was made in his form, who mirrored him, who was like him, who uh, fulfilled his uh, purpose. And Moses was one uh, to the Jewish people in their looking back who had no peer. He was in their minds, in their hearts, in their eyes, in their esteem, the guy in their history, the person, the man. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of highly esteemed and notable people who were used by God, who spoke for God, who spoke on behalf of God, who were loved by God. Adam and Eve and Noah and his family, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on, but none of them came close in the eyes and the esteem of the Jewish people to Moses because it was Moses who led them out of slavery, who led them out of Egypt, who led them out of bondage, that 400 plus years of being slaves to another people, not free to worship their God. It was Moses who was the person in their history, more than David, the king, the great king, more than Abraham, whom God called out of Haran, more than any of those people, more than Elijah, considered the greatest of the prophets. Moses was the guy who was their deliverer, their redeemer, the one in whom, through whom, and by whom God would rescue, God would save, God would redeem. In one sense, there was no deliverance, rescue, salvation for the people of Israel apart from Moses in Jewish thought and Jewish history. Similarly, but in infinitely more comprehensive and profound and gracious way, there is no deliverance. There is no rescue. There is no salvation from sin, from guilt, from condemnation, apart from the one who was like Moses and yet was also God himself. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one whom John described as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Apart from him, according to the scriptures, there's no rescue. There's no salvation. There's no deliverance. There's no liberation. You can pick whichever of those words most speaks to you from that basket of words that scripture uses to describe Jesus. He is the rescuer. He is the one who comes to us when we're drowning, when we're flailing, when we're out of gas, when we're struggling to breathe, when we're underwater because of the weight of our guilt, the weight of our pride, our self-absorption, and our ambivalence about things that really matter, as Howard Thurman prayed. And Moses said, and Stephen affirmed, that we should listen to him who said that God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to save and to rescue and to heal and redeem and that we should trust in him. And Jesus said elsewhere that he came not to save those who are well and really none are well, but to save those who are sick, who are suffering, who are full of disease, who are broken, who know their need. 
sidebar, sidebar for a moment. I, I didn't bring a copy of it. I meant to. Uh, there's a little uh, book uh, designed for children ages 4 to 10 or so. If you're looking for a Christmas gift for someone in your life, a neighbor, a grandchild, a daughter, a son, whoever, just random kids, I highly recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible. Write it down. Go to Amazon or your favorite bookseller. Uh, and give that book. And one of the ways that the author tells the story and all of the stories of the scriptures, Old Testament and New, is talking about God's rescue plan. Jesus was God's rescue plan. I don't know if you saw that ad or that uh, news article uh, the last couple days about that dude from Alabama who fell off the cruise ship and was out in the water for 15 hours all alone by himself, no flotation device, nada. That is us, needing a ship to show up, needing a rescue of some point, without which we drown and have no hope. Uh, great book, uh, The Jesus Bible Storybook. My little advertisement's over. There's no one who is with us, before us, behind us, beside us, and even somehow with us, who can save us. Thinking of that dude floating in the ocean all alone. There's no one who is positioned to save us, rescue us, deliver us, liberate us. Then Jesus, according to the scriptures. And at the same time, we are desperately in need of help and kindness and forgiveness and mercy. Whether we know it or not, rescue. The hymn writer got it right. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. The hymn writer got it right. But let's be sympathetic with our world today. Our postmodern, post-Christian, pluralistic, world. Let's be patient and sympathetic and understanding with them and with one another who often don't get it, who often don't understand reality, who regularly overlook God's great rescue plan, who are inclined to ignore it and ignore him. Let's be patient and understanding with them because they don't understand Jesus as we do, because most of the messaging the world has given to them, presented to them, that they see and hear and the world's lead up to Christmas says nothing about God's rescue plan, but instead reinforces something altogether different. And they say if a lie is told a million times, pretty soon it becomes fact. And that's what's happened in our world. I was in Home Depot on Monday, uh, and I was a little surprised to look up uh, there high up in uh, the shelves. Actually, I wasn't just surprised, I was shocked to see anything explicitly or actually Christian on the shelves in any way. And there I looked up, and way up on the top shelf was, bam, Jesus. I don't know if you can see it from that picture. Mary and Joseph, Jesus, a lamb and a donkey, and we'll zoom in a little bit, Mickey and Minnie as well. <laughs> right there. So I don't know how this all came to pass. Uh, if an angel ordained it, or if an employee was just doing what they were told, or if they were intentional or not intentional, 
uh, and putting these things together in the juxtaposition of it all, or if they were just putting things, products out on display. But if one doesn't know any of the rest of the story, one might believe, well, sure, Mickey and Minnie, they could just as well have been at the nativity as well as anyone else. It's all just myth. It's all just legend. It's all fiction. It's all whatever. Nothing real was happening there except maybe a, a poor peasant young woman giving birth to a baby in a town called Bethlehem on a starry night. So what? It's a cute story. And if those people want to believe that was a wonderful thing, fine. Let's put Mickey and Minnie in there because that's all it really is. It's just a cute story. But we know that it was more than that. We know it was more than that, and so we should be patient with the world around us who just don't understand Jesus. If the Home Depot Christmas is all that one has ever seen, if the Home Depot Christmas is the only story they've ever been told or exposed to, if one doesn't know the Jesus of history and that he was the one who saves and forgives and heals, the one who loves, the one who was sent by God as a new Moses to deliver and to rescue and to heal, if that's all a person knows, that Jesus was born to a young woman on a starry night wasn't that cute and precious. Let's set it in a manger. May people, us, we, be ambassadors of the fullness of the message of hope, of deliverance. That there's more to just some characters, inflatables, around a stable with a sheep and a donkey. That there was a world more that was going on there eternally and existentially and deeper and truer. That there is good news and not just another holiday filled with chocolate and fun songs and cute decorations, as wonderful as they are. So in closing, I want to step back from the story and consider for a moment other alternatives in history and other ways God have, could have done things. I realize that God could have approached all of this different. That God could have, in revealing himself, entered the world in power, entered the world in privilege. God could have been all about himself and his own glory. God could have come to judge. God, God could have come to squash. God could have come to squash the opposition. God could have come to do a lot of different things as the Greek gods and the mythological gods and the gods of other faiths and the gods of other religions came to do. But this God manifests, revealing himself, coming as Jesus, came to heal and to rescue and to deliver and to redeem, to show forgiveness, to make restoration possible. And that invitation remains open. It's the invitation that doesn't expire, or at least to this point hasn't expired, to all who will welcome it and to all who will receive it. Of course, the person who, for whom there is little hope is the one who does not see that, who does not see their own need for forgiveness and mercy. There's hope for everyone else. But it's the person who's consumed by pride, who thinks they're perfectly well, who has no issues at all, who denies sin, and maybe if that's someone, just turn to the people around you and ask them if there's sin in your life. There is. The only ones without hope are the ones who deny that they need nothing. And so God in Christ invites us to himself, but he invites us 
with the understanding of our own insufficiency, our own brokenness, our own sin, if you will. And he offers and he promises and he desires and he wills to forgive that sin by a new Moses who wasn't just a dude with a staff or a coat, but someone who came in force and with power to speak for God, God's message, and to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world. And so as we move toward communion, I want to pray again. I'm going to pray uh, Howard Thurman's prayer again and uh, invite you uh, to hear in his words maybe a prayer that could also be yours. Let's pray. May the sounds of Advent stir a longing in your people, O God. Come again to set us free from the dullness of routine and the poverty of our imaginations. Break the patterns which bind us to small commitments and to the stale answers we have given to questions of no importance. Let the Advent trumpet blow, let the walls of our defenses crumble, and make a place in our lives for the freshness of your love, well lived in your spirit, and still given to all who know their need and who dare to receive it. 